2019, the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Antitrust, Competition Policy, and Consumer Rights held a hearing that was actually titled, Your Doctor, Pharmacist, and Insurer Will See You Now. It was about the competitive implications of vertical consolidation in the healthcare industry. I wanted to set the stage for today's podcast with a quote from the hearing. The Open Markets Institute has identified hospital consolidation as a key driver of high health care costs in our country. This is Senator Amy Klobuchar. In recent years, we have seen an unmistakable trend toward vertical integration in the hospital supply chain. Hospitals and health systems are buying physician practices. Insurance companies are buying retail pharmacies and medical service providers. These vertical transactions offer the real possibility of medical cost savings and improved health outcomes for patients. But given existing high levels of concentrations in these markets after decades of horizontal competition, many people are understandably concerned. They worry that these large vertically integrated healthcare companies could use their market power to extract higher profits, reduce patient choice, and increase costs for consumers. My name is Lolita Abhyankar. I'm a family physician, and from Health Affairs, you're listening to Piecemeal, where we take a closer look at how consolidation in healthcare is affecting independent primary care practices and what that could mean for our healthcare system. I had the opportunity to speak with one of the panelists from the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee hearing, which was a far more enlightening conversation than all of the published papers and news articles that I could read about antitrust and healthcare. I wanted to share with you an excerpt of that conversation. Just as an aside, if you haven't yet listened to the second podcast episode in this series, where we talk about the different payment models like fee-for-service and value-based care and how those are driving consolidation within primary care, I encourage you to take a listen to those first so you have a bit of context. My name is Corey Capps. I'm an economist, and I've been studying competition in the healthcare industry, including insurers, doctors, specialists in primary care, hospitals, etc., for about 25 years. Dr. Capps was an economist at the Department of Justice Antitrust Division. He's now a partner at Bates White Economic Consulting in Washington, D.C. In my consulting work, I, I still focus on the intersection of healthcare and antitrust. That involves a lot of work on behalf of payers and providers of different sorts, so consider that a partial disclosure for the audience. It also includes a fair bit of work on behalf of the FTC, the Department of Justice, and various state agencies, whether state AG or something like the Massachusetts Health Policy Commission. So consider that the the rest of the disclosure. So how did you start researching? What interested you in this topic initially? Maybe like many things that work out well, it was kind of a a series of of accidents. I took a class from David Dranov on healthcare and industrial organization, which is a field that sort of studies competition in the economy generally. Meanwhile, there was a trend happening in the 1990s in healthcare consolidation. There were waves of hospital mergers, and the FTC and DOJ sued to block uh, a number of them, not, not a majority, but about a half a dozen, and they lost all six in a row. And you think if you're going to go to a trial, it should be about a 50-50 bet, because if you were certain to lose, you wouldn't go to trial, you would settle or abandon the merger. If you were certain to win, the FTC or DOJ would just not bother. So to lose six 50-50 bets in a row was really an unusual event. And when economists, at least, not all, but many looked at them, they said, wow, those seem like cases that the DOJ and FTC should have won. So the class with David 
drew me to healthcare a little more generally, and then some antitrust events going on drew me to antitrust and healthcare. And I would have moved on, but it's remained a, a timely topic ever since. Do you think that that's still the case, that the FTC and DOJ has trouble blocking mergers like that? So there was a lot of consolidation in the 90s. The FTC and DOJ sued. They they split authority back then over hospital mergers sued. They didn't block any of them. And then they gave up for about five or six years, maybe eight years, because if you keep touching a hot stove and keep getting burned, eventually you just stop. But that wasn't the end of everything. Myself and David and other economists started looking more closely at how the DOJ and FEC were litigating these cases, what economic frameworks were being used. We wrote a number of papers that said, you know, here's what the courts are missing. Here's a better way to capture and model these things. You really need to focus on how prices are determined in contract negotiations or bargaining. So let's apply bargaining theory from other fields within economics to the hospital insurer negotiations and try to reach better predictions and better models. That research happened, say, from 97 to early 2000s. By around 2008, the FTC was back to challenging hospital mergers, and it ended up winning, I want to say, something on the order of five out of six or six out of seven. They went from losing all to winning a significant majority of of their cases, and that was heavily driven by economic research, but with about a five to 10-year lag between what economists are doing and studying and publishing and what courts are, you know, adopting into their opinions. Dr. Capps published a paper in Health Affairs in 2017 on how physician practice consolidation was driven by small acquisitions, ultimately making the argument that antitrust agencies have very few tools to intervene. I asked him to give a little bit of background on the article. That was uh, joint research with David Dranoff, who I mentioned before, as well as another colleague, Chris Odie. And we wanted to actually look at Two things. First, let's get the basic facts and landscape. How many physicians are there and are they merging? To what extent are they merging? Is it 10 doctor practices going to 15 or is it 500 doctor practices going to 520 doctors? And then second, to the extent we could look at it, what were the price effects? And and the prices we did in in a later paper, the, the health affairs paper was really looking at the nature and extent of consolidation. We were not the only researchers to look at that. So there are some other papers like in health affairs that were saying, you know, hospitals are buying up physician practices. There are more popular destinations for physicians coming out of a residency to look to as an employer. So we convinced one or more insurers and in order to get these data, we had to promise to never reveal them. So they're still confidential, but they're real. We had to convince the, these entities. We can't name the insurer or insurers, or even tell you if it's singular or plural or which states, but it's a, a number of states, about a fifth of the U.S. population, I think, uh, somewhere in that order is covered by the states for which we had data. And we did verify other research that shows that there is a lot of consolidation going on. Practice sizes are getting larger. Independent practices are getting, you know, onesie, twosie, threesie, three doctor practices are becoming less common, though they still exist. And that has some pretty important implications, at least when it comes to antitrust. So we looked at relatively small geographic areas, think not neighborhoods, but not entire cities, say like Chicago. When we define sort of small areas like that, we found that about 25% of them are highly concentrated under their thresholds DOJ and FTC used to measure that. If a market has four or fewer sort of equally sized competitors, the concentration measures will say it's highly concentrated. Dr. Capps gave a couple of examples of what a highly concentrated market would look like. So for example, there's three major cell phone carriers that probably falls under highly concentrated. Maybe your favorite airline route has only two carriers flying on it. 
That's another example of highly concentrated. So many, but not most markets we found are in that highly concentrated range, meaning there's some evidence of a dearth of of competition by independent physician groups. So there's at least a potential issue for antitrust to be looking at. Second, our data went from 2007 to 2013. For the markets that were highly concentrated in 2013, how did they get there? Was it big mergers? You know, the medical group of Chicago merges with Chicago Doctors Incorporated and, you know, forms a thousand doctor group. Um, So those transactions do exist and, and they're out there. But by and large, the markets that were concentrated at the end of our sample got there through the larger groups doing more of the hiring and also acquiring small practices with on the order of 10 or fewer doctors. So we found, for example, that the percentage of physicians in practices with 10 or fewer doctors went down over the six-year period. Percentage of physicians working in practices with more than 100 doctors went up, and it was steadily skewed towards larger groups getting larger and smaller groups becoming less common. But it was the result of a lot of individually small transactions. So, you know, the phrase is the straw that broke the camel's back, but when you step back and look at it from the DOJ or FTC perspective, there's really two big challenges. Dr. Cap says that the first challenge is to figure out which of the transactions went too far. And if so, you might actually find yourself suing to block, say, an acquisition of two doctors out of, you know, 10,000 in the Chicago area, if that was where you were going to enforce. And maybe that would look just a little bit silly unless you can put the spotlight on the fact that it's actually two doctors every six months by the same acquiring entity such that over a three-year span, it's actually large, but but usually for the FTC and DOJ, they don't have to prove that this course of conduct is anti-competitive, but rather this specific acquisition is anti-competitive. Moreover, hiring isn't really part of what the antitrust laws can enforce against. There really has to be a merger or an acquisition, not if a firm grows organically by hiring more employees and selling more of its output. That's normally what we think of as as competition and, and how market forces work. So the second thing that we looked at was even when there were transactions that were big enough to potentially enforce against, meaning there was one transaction that exceeded the concentration thresholds DOJ and FTC use, there's a what's called a reporting threshold in antitrust. And in our sample period, it was about $75 million. Currently, it's about, I think it's $92 million. But if the transaction value is below that reporting threshold, merging parties or parties to an acquisition have no obligation to report the transaction to the FTC or DOJ. So even if it was individually big enough to enforce against, often the FTC and DOJ don't know about it until it's too late or don't know about it at all. So only the very big transactions, and it takes a lot of doctors to reach a deal value of 92 million, you know, maybe 100 doctors or more, perhaps fewer if you have specialists. The majority of the transactions are in the category where DOJ and FTC aren't notified. And even if they were notified, they're individually pretty small, such that, you know, to spend $10 million on a lawsuit to block an acquisition of two doctors or seven doctors would be a a tough stretch for a resource-constrained antitrust agency. The two things that come up for me is the one medical and Iora merger recently, and then also private equity in terms of how they're buying up and consolidating smaller markets with 10 or 12 practices, maybe in a small town. So that's like, that's the two things that I think about when you're talking about the threshold of what the FTC or DOJ can sue against versus what they wouldn't really identify. Right. And it there, there's a question of, you know, width versus depth. If a private equity firm is trying to buy up, you know, one major group in each metropolitan area along the eastern seaboard, that's less likely to raise antitrust concern. If they're really going to buy up, you know, 60% of the dermatologists or the ENTs in a definable geography, well, that's just a, a merger by other means among those otherwise potentially competing groups. And, and you could well see the FTC or DOJ looking at it 
but they would still have the challenge that potentially each individual transaction is 8 million or 17 million. So they don't, they don't get reported, even though when you add them all up together, you know, hypothetically, you could have 50 or 60% of, of the specialists in, in an area under common ownership. Do you think that this is something that we should be looking at further? Like it's, it's problematic for the system or this is just what's happening and, and getting too involved might bring up other problems. So one implication of, of, of the health affairs paper was that it's not just doctors, but 90 million is a really small deal value. If you think about like manufacturing where, you know, there might be a few dozen locations and they sell through the whole country or grocery store chains. If it were a smaller deal than that, it's, you know, not, not, not that many stores. For something like healthcare, where uh, provision is fundamentally fragmented because people want local doctors, relationships are important, the doctors need to know the hospitals, the patients need to be familiar with the hospitals. So that all means you're talking about, you know, at most urban areas, not the whole country. Well, there are, are you know, over 3,000 counties and 300 metropolitan statistical areas in the country. So when it's that fragmented, you're going to inherently have smaller deal size. So one potential approach would be to say the reporting threshold, this 92 million that I mentioned, should be substantially lower for industries that are fragmented so that transactions inherently have a, a lower deal value so that the FTC and DOJ could at least get notice. And that could be maybe a simple notification process, simpler than the full Hart Scott Rodino that large transactions have to face, but something that maybe would be akin to what Massachusetts uses, which is that parties to even a pretty small transaction have to file a material change notice. And I think the majority of those the state takes note of, puts in their files and updates their records. And then a subset of those, they say, wait, this is one where we should take a look. And so a process like that could, could be helpful. So I know that like at the state level, it's really hard to enforce some of these things or even across state lines. Do states have any teeth in this setting? All states can have teeth, meaning to my knowledge, each of them either adopt the federal antitrust laws as their own or some have their own version of that, which may be stronger. So California has what's called the Cartwright Act and it does everything that the federal laws do in practice, though. We've seen state level enforcement in Pennsylvania, usually ending up in consent decrees. State of Washington did challenge a physician acquisition on the Kitsap Peninsula. In, in disclosure, I worked for, for Washington on, on that transaction and they achieved a partial victory. And, but that was, you know, 18 months of, of litigation, a pretty good sized team from the attorney general's office working on that, as well as the cost of economists and other vendors and all to block a pair of transactions that were below the reporting threshold that I had mentioned before. Why did the state do it instead of the FTC? You know, one might be that they're more local and attuned to smaller deals because they live and work and interact with employers and payers in, in their community more so than, you know, the FTC, which in that case is more or less across the country. And when we talk about how fragmented the healthcare industry is, it does mean that the FTC and DOJ, maybe they should focus on the larger fish, the, the bigger transactions, and there's a greater role for the states to at least monitor, you know, requiring a little bit of reporting, 30-day pause, whether the state would then refer to the FTC or DOJ a subset of transactions that are problematic. But those types of programs, which exist in a few states, more states could roll out. And it would just be not a uh, total, you know, blockage on transactions, but just a, a you know, sort of a yield sign where some transactions could be pulled over. And so you see, I want to say Connecticut has reporting of that sort, Massachusetts has the most well-developed. The state of Washington has fairly new legislation on that. California has it. I don't think it's enacted yet. It got sort of sidetracked, but it was going to be even more wide-ranging and put special obligations on reporting when it's private-related. And I'm not sure that we should single out one buyer as a priori worse, but 
but nonetheless, that's uh, maybe symptomatic of the times. And I think New York may be heading in that direction. So I think I just identified like five of the eight bluest states in the country. There doesn't have to be that bifurcation, you know, promoting and protecting competition is not normally a partisan issue, but <laughs> there, there is a correlation there. What are the larger impacts of this sort of consolidation? Well, there is actually a lot to commend the scaling up of physician practice sizes that we're observing. I mean, when you see something so widespread in the market, maybe it could all be an efficient market power play, but more likely there are some fundamental market forces that are, that are pushing in that direction. So when we look at value-based care or even a little bit of pay for performance incentives, can you keep your patients out of the hospital, even out of the emergency department on the weekends? Well, sure, if you have doctors available on the weekends. Payer contracting, especially in a value-based arena, is much more complicated, right? So to have two or three doctors who want to be efficient at the practice of medicine and the rigors of monitoring dashboards to see how they're doing on pay for performance, that's a lot to do. With three doctors, it's not efficient to hire a specialist to handle that. So that's going to push up the scale. And, and also the cost of electronic healthcare records, which is sort of an input into doing anything efficiently. So all of that is saying we need the scale to be able to have real overhead people, IT processes and systems. And so that does mean groups need to get larger. Outside of pretty low population areas, that's really not inconsistent with also having competition. So I did an approximation, and there's about one PCP for every 11 or 1,200 people. So a town of 100,000 can have 80 to 100 PCPs, which means they could have actually three to five pretty substantial size groups, meaning at least more than 10 and, and some of them more than, than 20 doctors. 80, 85% of the population lives in areas with more than 100,000 people. When you get smaller than that, maybe you can have two groups or one group. And when you get truly rural, then, you know, we're going to rely on the, the good faith of Marcus Welby and, you know, the, the general practitioner who does everything. What is your take on, on where antitrust and FTC should stand when it comes to primary care consolidation in general? I, I think one thing they need to do is be a little bit neutral, Right. If two physician groups are merging, say 15 plus 15 to 30, maybe that makes them less likely to be acquired by a hospital system. And so their goal is not to, to protect competition so that market forces can tell whether the 30 doctor independent group is a better way to deliver value-based care than the hospital, say, buying up 15 or all 30 of those doctors. So I think the FTC wants to not have a bias, but some of the research on hospital acquisitions of physicians, you know, suggests that there would be a high bar for claiming that care coordination would lead to systemic savings in the absence of a different model. So for example, if, if the FTC looks at the transaction and sees that, oh wait, the doctors are all paid on the basis of work RVUs, well, that's not, <laughs> you know, that's not going to change anyone's incentives in, in, in a meaningful way and language that someday will do value-based care down the road once we've integrated, well, that means the potential harms are happening the day the merger closes and the benefits maybe five, 10 years down the road. So it's got to be fact intensive, case specific. And unfortunately, because the healthcare market is so fragmented geographically, that's going to take a lot of resources for the FTC to look at. And, you know, I gave some Senate testimony a few years ago, and one of the points I made, other people have said it because it's true and fairly obvious and, and somewhat important, the volume of transactions all industries, not just healthcare, is you know much larger than it was in 2010, but the agency budget, FTC and DOJ, are not that much larger than they were a decade ago. So having to do more with less is a tough situation. And you know, right now tech and, and antitrust is drawing all of the attention. Healthcare, that, that's also identified to be fair as a priority by the by the FTC commissioners, but you know, 
it's not being squawked about by Congress people in the way that the tech is. So without a big budget increase for the FTC and DOJ, you know, smaller transactions are at risk of being sort of just ignored, not because they don't want to investigate them, but because there there are genuinely larger fish to fry. It does seem like things are trending in a direction where we might see more resources given to the DOJ and FTC over the next couple of years, simply to stay on top of the sheer number of mergers and acquisitions. States also may become more aware of smaller acquisitions, which could help balance some of the current pendulum swing towards mergers that are anti-competitive. In the next episode, we'll talk about that sweet spot where consolidation of practices can actually lead to cost saving. And we'll also talk about how independent practices can gain the benefit of consolidation without losing their autonomy. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode or learned anything at all, please be sure to spread the word, like, and subscribe, or leave a comment and review wherever you get your podcasts. From Health Affairs, you're listening to Piecemeal. Thank you so much, and I hope to see you next time. Music, melody, and production by So Brown and Jack Mason.